0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Unknown God Revealed. All right, so think about this. Philosophy, ethics, democracy, the arts, uh, architecture, shrines, altars, statues, all these words that I'm saying and so many more describe the next city that Paul is about to visit on his second missionary journey. It's the famed city of Athens. And so during the fifth century BC, so literally, 500 years before the events of what takes place in our chapter today, Acts chapter 17, in the 5th century uh, BC, Athens was at the zenith of its power. It was was the largest city-state in all of Greece, and it was the cultural capital of the world. They call the 5th century uh, BC there in Greece and in Athens, they call it the Golden Age. They called it the Golden Age because it was the home of, play, of, of uh, people like Socrates, who is considered the father of philosophy, and Herodotus, who is considered the father of history. And Athens was also the home of Hippocrates, who was considered the father of medicine. I'm sure you've all heard of the Hippocratic Oath. And so, of all the things Athens was famous for, it was most famous for being a center of philosophy. so as I've already mentioned, uh, Socrates, the father of philosophy, lived there. He lectured there. But not just Socrates, but Plato uh, lived in Athens. He lectured in Athens. He started an academy of philosophy in Athens. And a little later in history, Aristotle came along, and he started a school of philosophy in that same city. Later, two other very famous philosophers will come on the scene in Athens, and their influence, by the way, is gonna be seen in our text today as we go verse by verse through the rest of the chapter. Their names were Zeno, and of course, the followers of Zeno were called the Stoics, And and then you got Epicurus, and the followers of Epicurus, they were known as the Epicureans, and so Paul is going to debate with those two guys' followers in our text today once we continue on in our study. And so later in history, so 5th century BC, Athens is at the zenith of its power, but then later in history, in 146 BC, of course, Rome defeats Greece in the Battle of Corinth. And so after that occurred, Athens lost a lot of its significance. I think I read that it got down to only 20,000 people when Paul uh, enters the city in the first century AD. But it still remained a key cultural center in the Roman Empire. And so I want you to just think this through with me this morning. Athens, right? Cultural center of the world. Home of the great philosophers. And yet, with all its culture... And all its academia, Athens was absolutely steeped in spiritual darkness. You see, the city was not just a center for philosophy. Nothing wrong with philosophy. As long as philosophy doesn't you know, contradict the word of God or the God of the Bible, there's nothing wrong with philosophy. The problem, the real problem in Athens was that it was a center for religion. And so there was countless idols that were dedicated to all the various gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And so here in Acts chapter 17, our guy, you know, our hero, the apostle Paul, the rabbi, the scholar, the the representative of Christ, he's going to walk straight into this vast spiritual darkness of Athens, and he's going to go toe-to-toe with the great intellects of the day. And so we're gonna pick it up today in actually verse 16. If you remember, Paul has to escape from Berea, and so he gets on a boat by himself. He goes all the way down to Athens, leaving Silas and Timothy in Berea. And so right now, if you're looking at Acts 17, 16, please say amen. amen. So visitors, this is what we do. We go through the scriptures, and we really encourage you to follow along verse by verse. And so it says... Luke, the author of Acts, writes in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, that means Silas and Timothy, who he left in Berea. And so while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled with what? Idols. And so as the Apostle Paul walks into the great city of Athens, midway through the first century A.D., he looks around and some of the magnificent buildings that he sees had been standing for about 500 years. And so the first thing that Paul would have seen, the first thing that you'll see if you ever go visit Athens, was known as the Acropolis, the, the quote-unquote Sacred rock rising 512 feet above sea level. Right now, the Acropolis is one of the uh, most famous archeological sites in all the world. On top of the Acropolis, of course, is the Parthenon. The Parthenon being built between 447 and 432 BC. Now, in terms of architecture, the Parthenon, one of the greatest buildings that had ever been built by man. But, sadly... That building that you see was dedicated to the goddess Athena. Athens, named after the goddess Athena, and in that Parthenon, if you could imagine, if you would've walked into the Parthenon in Paul's day, there was a 39-foot statue of Athena right front and center in that building. And just northwest of the Acropolis, you have Mars Hill, Mars Hill. The Areopagus. And so in in the Greek pantheon, Ares was the god of war. In the Roman pantheon, Mars is the equivalent of Ares. And that's why this place is called the, the Mount of Ares or the Mount of Mars or Mars Hill. And so on that hill, this is fascinating to me, but for hundreds of years, judges would meet and they would conduct political and judicial proceedings, and they were called the Areopagus. They were actually named after the hill that they met on for some 500 plus years. And so by the time Paul enters into the city, the Areopagus that he's gonna talk to here in just a moment, they were more of a council than a court. They had lost with the city a lot of their significance, but these guys, this Areopagus court, these intellectual elites, they still have jurisdiction over all academic and all religious matters there in the city of Athens. And so back to verse 16, Paul is there. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy, so he decides to be a tourist. He goes up and down the streets. He begins to read all the inscriptions, and what does he see? He sees countless shrines, countless altars, countless statues and idols, and they're all dedicated to the false gods of the Greek pantheon. And So as he takes it all in, as a good Jew, his spirit becomes provoked within him. He becomes discouraged, he becomes angry in a righteous sort of way. I imagine if, as Paul is walking around, he's probably thinking of the first two commandments. You know what those are, right? You shall have no no other God before me, says Yahweh, the one and only true God, and you shall not make any graven images. But I wonder if Paul, as he walked around the, the streets of Athens just lined with idols, I wonder if he thought about the words of Isaiah. Either on the screen or on your note card, Isaiah said this. God said this actually through Isaiah. He said, I am The Lord. Can you guys just shout out the words, the two words, the Lord? Go ahead. The Lord. Lord. That's Yahweh. The one and only true God if you're brand new to church or brand new to the Bible. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory (laughs) I give to no other, nor my praise to what? To carved idols. And so as Paul is thinking about the truth of God's word, and he's surrounded by all these lies, all this deception, all this nonsense, he experiences righteous anger. And and I I would have to ask you, isn't it sad that with all their culture and all their academia, isn't it sad that the, the smartest people in the world in the first century AD are dumb enough to bow down to graven images and graven idols. And so before we look down at the the Athenians too much, uh, we really need in our day, in our culture to apply this, we need to consider the definition of the word idol. It's the first fill in the blank on your card if you're taking notes, but what is an idol really? An idol is anyone or anything that we substitute for God anyone or anything that we substitute for the Lord, for Yahweh, the one and only true God. So an idol doesn't have to be a carved image. I want you to think through this with me. An idol does not have to be a little trinket. You know, we we think these intellectual people are so dumb because they're bowing down before little gods and goddesses or they're bowing down in temples or whatever. But an idol does not just have to be a carved image. Did you know that an idol um, doesn't have to be material? It can be mental. Think about this with me. An idol could be a political ideology. Someone says, you know, I'm Republican. And that becomes their primary identity. And what they do four hours a night is they watch Fox News. And every time you talk to them, all they can talk about is politics. And even though they would never admit it, what's happened, their political ideology has become front and center and number one in their life. It's an idol, right? To be fair, I gotta say, same with Democrats who watch CNN all day, okay? But it's true. Be careful about what you elevate in your heart and what you're all about and who, what your identity is. Hey, an idol doesn't have to be material. It can be mental. It can be a quest for power. You know, I'm gonna do whatever I can to get this position, right, CEO, president, Uh, manager, boss, I'm gonna climb that ladder, I don't care who I kick down as I'm climbing the ladder, that becomes my identity, I gotta have this position. No, it's actually an idol that you need to repent of because you've elevated that in your heart. It could be a desire for riches. Someone has a goal. My main goal in life, I'm gonna become a millionaire. Man, I just cannot wait. That day is gonna come, and I'm gonna look at my bank account, and it's gonna say $1 million in my savings account, and then I'll know I've arrived. But guess what? You'll be as empty as you were when you had two bucks in your savings account. It's an idol. Don't make that your number one quest. Make Jesus your number one quest. Right, All these things in our age, what, I, what, what, what am I doing? I'm trying to apply this to our culture, right? An idol doesn't have to be material, it can be mental. It can be an addiction to alcohol or drugs. Where the first thing someone thinks of when they wake up is when can I get my next drink? Well, that's a sign of alcoholism. And instead of denying it, you should admit it, and you should seek help because there's no way in and of yourself you'll ever Deliver yourself from that kind of powerful bondage without outside help from people who know and love the Lord and the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what's gonna deliver you from your alcohol. That's what's gonna deliver you from your drugs. That's what's gonna deliver you from porn. That's what's gonna deliver you from your sex addiction. Jesus Christ and him risen from the grave, but you've got to start by admitting you have a problem and you gotta fall at his feet. See, all these things are idols. It could be an obsession with a sports team. This is where I, you know, I, I, I do this, but I got three pointing back at me. It's me. You know, I got the jerseys, I got the thing on my wall in my home gym, and I got all this stuff, and, but I, I gotta be careful because um, if I'm not careful, I allow a, 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 um, a passion for a sports team to get too high in my heart. And next thing you know, the next thing all you're ever talking about is you know, how are the Miami Dolphins doing and what are all the stats and who are all the players and why are they only one, was it one game or two games? Anyway, I won't rub that in. <laughs> I had to, I'm a Bucks fan, okay. <laughs> So people look to all these things, right? Whatever they are, they, they, they look to these things to fill the void inside of them. In the process, these things become substitutes for God. But how many of you guys know that only Christ can fill the void in our hearts, right? So why do we substitute all these things for Christ? How many of you guys know that only Christ should have the number one place in our lives? So why is it that we allow people or other things, maybe it's a special person in your life, whatever, to have a higher place than Him? And so we've gotta answer this question honestly in our hearts. We gotta answer the question, who or what am I most passionate for? Can you do that this morning just between you and the Lord? Just ask yourself, who or what am I most passionate for? Before you say Jesus, right? Uh, just know that God sees your heart and he knows already. And so if it's not Jesus, just admit it. The Lord's got big shoulders, he can take it. But then return to Christ in repentance and faith and ask him to do revival in your heart so that he can have number one, have that number one place in your life again. And so Paul sees all these idols in Athens and he thinks, man, these people need Jesus. And now look at verse 17. What is Paul do? How does he respond? Well, he rolls up his sleeves and he goes to work. It says in verse 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. That's where he always starts. Have you guys noticed that in the book of Acts? The Jew first, then the Greek. So he goes in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, that's, that's um, Gentile God-fearers. But I love this part. Look at this. And in the marketplace, every day. And those who happened to be there, it says in verse 18, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? You know, this, this like, the original word there has the idea of a seed picker, like, Imagine a bird going around and picking seed from all different places. Well, you know, what is this babbler, this guy who doesn't have an original thought in his head who just steals stuff from all other people? What does he have to say? They're mocking him. Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching what? I mean, sorry, he was preaching who and what? Jesus and the resurrection so Paul begins his ministry in the synagogue, but then, I love it, he goes to the Agora, he goes to the marketplace. And by the way, um, the ancient marketplace there in Athens, archeologists have excavated it, so if you ever visit the city, you can see it. And so Paul, sharing the gospel somewhere in that area right there, and as he's doing that, followers of two famous philosophers come up and they begin to debate with the apostle Paul. Okay. So who are these guys? One of the philosophers, again, his name was Epicurus. Let me tell you about the Epicureans so you understand what's going on in the content and the background of your Bible uh, here in Acts chapter 17. So the Epicureans, uh, they were polytheists. In other words, they believed in the gods, the Greek pantheon of gods, the followers of this guy believed in them, but they taught that the gods are distant, the gods are aloof. They're not even cognizant of humanity. They don't even know that you're alive. So what do they believe about the material universe? They believe that matter is eternal. Matter has always been here, so there's no need for a creator, and there's no need for creation. Concerning death, they believe that when you take your last breath, your body, which is material, and your soul, which is material, according to this guy, just evaporates. It just kind of disintegrates. And so there's no afterlife. There's no judgment. And so what does that lead to? Well, concerning life, this life is all there is. And so what should you do? In this life, you should avoid pain at all Cost and you should produce. Uh, you should you should pursue peace. You should pursue pleasure. You should pur- pursue comfort. Life should be all about good food, good friends, and good times. That's the Epicureans. So a modern example of Epicureanism? Well, Timon and Pumbaa <laughs> from The Lion King, right? Akuna matata. It means no worries for the rest of your days. Listen, the gods, they're aloof, they're distant. They don't even know you exist. And when you die, you disintegrate. You just cease to exist. So there's no judgment. And so, hey, party, man. That's the Epicureans. Now there is some truth in Epicureanism. By the way, there's some truth in all these man-made philosophies, if you study them. And so the truth in Epicureanism is, is that we should pursue peace. But we as Christians, we know that true peace can only be found in the Prince of Peace and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives us peace and you can never fill that void, as I've already said, with all that other stuff. The other philosopher, their followers who, who confronted Paul, his name was Zeno and he's, uh, the, uh, his followers are called the Stoics. He lived from 340 to 265 BC, okay, so Zeno, The Stoics, what did they believe? They were not polytheists. They didn't believe in the gods. They believed um, in pantheism. In other words, they believed in a deity. The deity was called, called divine reason. Very interesting. Synonymous with the Logos. So they believed in the Logos, not like we believe in the Logos. They believed the Logos was divine reason, synonymous with providence or fate. They believed that the material universe was eternal and they believed that the Logos, the divine reason, did not create the material universe but was part of the material universe. Think of it this way, everything that you see around you, the world, the universe, that's the Logos' body. So the Logos is the soul and all the material stuff, that's its body. Concerning death, they believe that when we die, we become absorbed or one with divine reason or the logos. And concerning life, they believe that we should live in harmony the best we can with the divine reason. And the way we do that is we pursue, above all other things, we pursue virtue. We try to live logically as opposed to emotionally. We do our best you know, to make sure that we're living by reason as opposed to living by our feelings. And we, man, we've really arrived when we can become unmoved by pain or pleasure. And so a modern day example of stoicism, well, (laughs) live long and prosper. It's so funny to me that I had forgotten that it's been a long time since me and my brothers watched Star Trek and So most of the up-and-coming generation, you guys are saying, who is that guy? Well, that's Spock from, from Star Trek, okay? So you can go back and try to watch some of those reruns. But Spock, you know, he's never emotional. He's always logical. And so that's the Stoics. Now, there's some truth in Stoicism. The truth is we should pursue logic. We should pursue wisdom, But as Christians, we know that true wisdom can only be found in the true Logos, and his name is Jesus Christ. The true Logos, by the way, the Word, think of this, John 1.1, in the beginning, the beginning of the material universe, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the text continues to say, created. He's not part of creation, he's outside of creation. The Logos spoke creation, spoke the material universe into existence. And get this, John 1, 12, and the word, the Logos, became flesh. And so the Logos that we believe in, very different than the Logos the Stoics believe in. They believed in an impersonal entity. We believe in a very personal God. His name is Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is the Epicurean and the Stoics and their followers are approaching Paul and he's in the Agora, the the, the marketplace, and they begin to talk to him. They begin to uh, get into this Socratic style debate of questions and answers going back and forth. And don't you wish you could be there to hear Paul debate with these guys? Let's see what happens. Look at verse 19. It says, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody they look at you like you got two heads? Like, what are you talking about? We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and and foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so since Paul was there publicly in the marketplace and he's talking about religion and religious matters, the Epicurean followers and the the followers of Epicurus and the followers of, of Zeno, they say, hey, wait a minute, you're talking about religion publicly and all religious and educational matters are subject to the jurisdiction of the Areopagus, so follow us, we are inviting you to speak to the Areopagus. Let's see what happens, verse 22. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, okay, so a lot of people believe that he actually went up to Mars Hill, that picture I showed you earlier. Other people say, no, the Areopagus met in the marketplace in the first century. Hey, it doesn't really matter where they met. What matters is what Paul's gonna say here. And so he says, men of Athens, in verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, here it is, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, (laughs) this I proclaim to you. I love this. Paul's about to shine the light of truth into their darkness. He's about to reveal the identity of the unknown God. And so point number one, verse 24, the God. Okay, so is that plural or singular? You tell me. Singular. There is no God's plural. The God who made the world. In other words, material, material universe, it's not eternal, it had a beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, the material universe, as I've said a thousand times, is the effect of a cause. God's the cause. The material universe is the effect. Paul knew this, and he tells these guys who think they're so smart, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You gotta gotta just admire Paul's boldness here. And so what does Paul do? Paul shines the light into their darkness by declaring to them first, number one, if you wanna fill it in on on your note sheet, that God is our creator, our creator. Now you tell me, is this relevant to the culture we live in, yes or no? What's taught in our public school systems now for how many years? Just the opposite. Our culture does not wanna believe that very simple truth, that God is our creator. David knew this. He wrote in Psalm 19, one through four, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice, the witness of creation is not heard their voice has gone out throughout the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, David would say, I've walked outside in the middle of the night on a clear evening and I've looked up and I've seen the stars and here's what I know, there's a God. I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever gone outside in the middle of the night and uh, it's a clear evening and you look up and it's just like, wow. Look at this order, look at this design, look at this beauty. This is creation and if there's creation, there's gotta be a creator. And, and by the way, that's one of the purposes of creation. One of the purposes of creation is to point to the creator. Paul wrote in Romans chapter one, for since the creation of the world, listen to this, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Okay, so how do we know there's a God? There's creation. How do we see his invisible attributes? Through the material universe. So this is Romans chapter 1, verse 20. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, unbelievers, are without excuse. Ladies and gentlemen, every single person who's ever breathed air into their lungs has at least two witnesses from God. They have the witness of creation from without, and they have the witness of conscience within. And so if somebody, I don't care if there's some pagan, you always hear this, right? What about the pagan who lives on the remote island? It doesn't matter. Everybody who's ever lived has looked up and seen creation, and that is a witness to the existence of God. And they have the choice right there to either say there's a creator or to turn to their, their darkness and their sin. When they turn to their darkness and their sin, that's when everything becomes cloudy. And they're looking for excuses to explain away the creator. We have the witness of creation without, we have the witness of conscience from within. And you look up into the sky and you look around the world and here's what I see, I don't see random chance. I see intelligent design. It's So true. Just look at the laws of probability if you're not convinced. And I remember as a little kid, I had this faint memory of being outside the house with my dad in Tampa and he was talking about God and he said, you know, of course I believe in God, how else did all this happen? And that that one statement, I don't know how how old I was, eight, nine, 10 years old, that was just like right in my heart. Moms and dads, here's what you need to do, you need to be talking to your kids about God. Now make sure you're living for him at the same time, otherwise they're gonna see right through that but live for the Lord and man talk about him because you're planting seeds in their little hearts. And so regarding intelligent design, Dr. Mike Denton, a PhD in biochemistry said, and I quote, please please listen, Earth's location, size, structure, atmosphere, temperature, internal dynamics, and its many intricate cycles that are essential to life like the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, the sulfur cycle, the calcium cycle, the sodium cycle, and so on, all testify to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precariously balanced. You see, all those factors, they don't point to random chance over millions of years, they all point to intelligent design. By the way, did you hear about the atheist slash evolutionist who went for a hike in the woods. So he goes for a hike in the woods and he's admiring the beautiful mountains and the flowing river and the birds are chirping, right? And everything's wonderful. He's admiring all the, all the life all around him, you know, all the accidents that took millions of years to happen. And as he's admiring all this, all of a sudden there's a rustle in the trees. And the next thing you know, he sees a giant grizzly bear who starts charging after him. And so the atheist turns around and starts to run as fast as he can. But the the grizzly is closing in and he trips and he falls down. The next thing he knows, he looks up and the giant grizzly bear is standing over him. And the giant grizzly lifts up his paws with his claws and he's just about to slash him. And the atheist yells, oh God, help! (laughs) And all of a sudden, time stopped. The grizzly bear froze his paws suspended in midair. The birds stopped chirping. The river stopped flowing. It was just total silence. And a celestial light shined down on the atheist. And he heard a majestic voice. And the voice said, you have denied my existence and you've taught others to deny me. You call my creation an accident of random chance. And now that you're in a crisis, now you're calling out for me? Should I consider you a Christian? To which the atheist says, I know you're right. It'd be the height of hypocrisy for me right now to suddenly become a Christian. So I have just one request. Please make the grizzly bear a Christian. (laughs) And at that moment... At that moment, time started again. The birds started chirping, the river started flowing, and the bear, whose paw was suspended in midair, brought both paws together, bowed his head and said, for this meal I'm about to receive, (laughs) I give thanks. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, there is a God He is the creator, and he's not just a creator. He's also our provider. Okay, look at verse 24. Paul says, hey, not only did God make the world and everything in it, but he doesn't live in temples. Look at verse 25. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I love this, what is Paul doing? Talking to the intellectual elite and he's giving them the doctrine of the true God. You tell me we don't need this today? Nor is he, the true God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, what's the next word? Gives. To all mankind life and breath and everything. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, just take a deep breath. That's a gift from God right there. When's the last time you thanked God for air? When's the last time you thanked God for oxygen? When's the last time you thanked God for eyesight, for the ability to hear, for the ability to taste you know, different flavors of ice cream? <laughs> When's the last time you thanked God for the ability to walk or some of you actually run? When's the last time you thanked God for the relationships in your life? You see, all of these are gifts from the Lord. And so what does Paul do? He shines the light of truth into their darkness by uh, secondly pointing out that God is our provider. Now, the reason he's got to bring this up is because of their sad view and belief in the gods of the Greek pantheon. So all these mythological gods, you gotta understand, I know it's been a long time since you studied Greek and Roman mythology in high school, but what you gotta understand is that these gods, these mythical gods, they were nothing more than elevated humans, deified humans with the same passions, the same lusts, the same sinful tendency that mankind exhibits. This was their gods. Their gods were needy, their gods were never satisfied, their gods always wanted more. And so these people, these poor Athenians, they had to get on the good side of the gods. So what did they do? They brought their sacrifices, they brought their offerings to these gods. And God forbid you ever get on the bad side of these Greek gods, because judgment is coming. You know, Zeus may throw a lightning bolt at you or whatever. And so Paul says, hey, wait a minute, the true God is different. Look at the end of verse 25. No 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 the true god paul says gives gives to all mankind life and breath and and everything And so what you need to know if you're new to the Bible is that there is a God and this God is omnipotent, he's all powerful, he's omniscient, he's all knowing, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time, he's eternal, he has no beginning and no end, he's uncreated and he's sovereign, that means he's large and in charge. And not only is he all those things, but he's also self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Ladies and gentlemen, God was doing quite well before we arrived, and he'll be doing quite well after we leave. And somebody says, okay, if God is not needy, then why why should we give him our time? Why should we give him our talent? Why should we give him our treasure? If he doesn't need anything, pastor, why are you always talking about the principle of the tithe? Why do we gotta give anything to a God who is self-sufficient? Well, here's why. We give him those things not because he needs them. We give him those things as a way to express our love and our appreciation for all he's done in our lives. We give him those things as a response to his grace in our lives. Listen, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but my number one, uh, uh, my number one motive for giving whether it's time, talent, or treasure, is not to get something back. That's another church somewhere else, that's not this church. The number one reason that we give is a, it's an act of worship, it's an act, to, a, a, a way to honor God, and it's a way to say thank you that you're a good, good God. And then God in his sovereignty decides if he wants to bless us materially, immaterially, whatever. But, but listen, God's not gonna make you rich because you give to him and because you name it and claim it. That's not our God. Are you trying to tell me that faithful Christians in third world countries that are living in poverty, that the gospel doesn't apply to them? No, God's still blessing them. He's just blessing them in a different way. We need to stop being greedy and selfish and materialistic and understand that we give to God not to get something back, no, we give to God to honor him and then if he chooses to bless us, praise the Lord. Be careful with your motives. I gotta continue on, so look at verse 26. Paul says, and he made, look at this, in verse 26, he made from one man, okay, who's that? Adam. He's not a little, you know, fictional character from a fireside story, he's actually real. Can I just share something with you guys that when the Bible speaks of historical events, they really did happen in history. Don't listen to the liberal theologians that try to explain away Adam and Eve in an allegorical way, like it's some kind of bedtime story. No, there an Adam. Okay, so, and he made, God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Look at this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God, who is large and in charge, decided when people would live, the descendants of Adam and Eve, and where they would live. Verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so Paul, again, shines the light of truth into the darkness by declaring, number three, that God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He is, as I've said, large and in charge. And so he determines where the descendants of Adam and Eve lived, and he determined determined when they lived. Because he's sovereign, he's in control. Now, this is the lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. You guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar? The king of Babylon in the sixth century BC. Babylon at that time was the world power, the premier power. And so one day, Nebuchadnezzar walks out on the roof of his palace, his palatial palace, and he puts his arms up. He says, look at this great Babylon. He's kind of like the WWF wrestler, right? Look at this great Babylon that I have built. I have built this great Babylon for my majestic glory and splendor. Be careful. Be careful about bragging. You see, because after those boastful remarks, God, and it was an act of mercy, it was an act of grace, God intervened and Nebuchadnezzar went insane. His hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers and his fingernails grew as long as a bird's claws. And the next thing you know, he thinks he's an animal, so they put him outside where he's going around on all four fours eating grass for seven years years and then finally after seven long years of insanity i'm now reading you don't have to turn there i'll just read it to you but from daniel chapter four the book of daniel says this is nebuchadnezzar speaking at the end of the days i nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven hey it's about time you started acknowledging where all your blessings are coming from but as you've heard a thousand times, sometimes you gotta reach the lowest low before you'll finally look up. And so I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had a true conversion. He's in heaven. We'll meet him someday. And thank you, Daniel, for being faithful to live it and to speak it to Nebuchadnezzar. Speaking of the, Only God, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, once pagan, said this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing compared to him, and he does according to his will. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, he says, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride... Tell me this is not applicable to our culture today. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You see, it's the proud person who looks around at the blessings and everything that's going good and points to himself. Look at me and gives himself the credit. It's the humble person who looks at all the blessings of life and gives the sovereign God all the credit. Look at verse 28. Now this is fascinating to me. Paul, obviously a Jew, he's a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek speaking Jew, but nonetheless, he is Jew through and through. But he's such a scholar, he even knows their pagan poetry. He's gonna quote from two poets one from the sixth century BC and the other from the third century BC. He says, for, verse 28, for in him, we live and move and have our being. He's not quoting the Bible there, he's quoting Epimenides, a sixth century uh, BC poet. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his, what? offspring, now he's quoting Aratus, third century BC poet. What is Paul doing? Paul, listen, he's not, he's not preaching a sermon to believers like at the, the synagogue in Thessalonica going through the scriptures here. He's evangelizing pagans. And so what does he do? He, 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 he creates a bridge in between him and the pagans by quoting their poets. I think it's a pretty good thing. And the last thing that he says is that we are indeed his offspring. And so Paul shines the light of truth into their darkness by declaring, number four, that God is our Father. Our Father. Now think through this with me and please, more than any other time during the sermon, listen to this very carefully because I really am talking about eternal matters more than ever right now. God is our Father in the sense that he created all people. All right? So in the sense that God's a creator in that sense, in that sense only, he is the father of everyone that he creates. Psalm 139, I quoted it last week. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. And so Eratus, that third century pagan um, poet, was right. We are indeed his offspring. Of course, Eratus is talking about Zeus, and you know for a fact that Paul's talking about Yahweh. We are his offspring, but, if you're with me, say amen here. Listen, listen, listen. Our sin has separated us from our creator. So we're in desperate need of reconciliation. And in order for reconciliation to take place, we have to have two birthdays. We have to have a physical birthday and we have to have a spiritual birthday. Jesus said in John 3:3, most assuredly I say to you, Talking to Nicodemus, a religious guy who thought he was going to heaven. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, being physically born is not enough. If you wanna go to heaven, you need to be spiritually born. You need to be born again, and it's at the new birth that we become spiritually alive, reconciled to God, and God becomes not just our creator, but our Father in the truest sense, in the redemptive sense. I was born physically in 1966 in Waco, Texas. And if you're doing the math, I'm 53, okay? So don't do the math. So I was born physically in Waco, Texas, 1966. But here's the thing, I was born spiritually, in May of 1984 in Tampa, Florida. You say, when did that happen? When I stopped trusting Mike Wiggins to save Mike Wiggins, thinking I'm good enough to go to heaven, and I turned to Christ in repentance and faith and trusted Christ alone to save me from my sin and death. And at that moment, I was justified by faith and the Spirit of God came inside of me and He woke me up spiritually. I was born again. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, spoke of his future obituary. He said this, and I quote, someday you're gonna read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Here's the question, answer it in your hearts, between you and the Lord. Are you born again? Okay, so one more point and we're done, but look at verse 29. Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. You know, Look down the street, Areopagus, that's not God. Please, give me a break an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. No, verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. God has withheld his judgment. He's the God of grace. But now, uh uh-oh, he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." And so Paul shines the light of truth one more time into their darkness, and he declares, number five, that God is our judge. Now, I don't have time to explain this point, but let me just say this, that one one day God's gonna judge the world. Ladies and gentlemen, all this evil in our culture, it's not gonna go on indefinitely. The Lord will come back. He will judge the world. The question you have to answer again in your heart is am I ready for this judgment? Now you can respond one of three ways and those three ways are seen in our last three verses. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, look at this, verse 32, some mocked. Okay, you can respond that way if you wanna laugh, but just know God's gonna get the last laugh. But others said, well, we'll hear you again about this. In other words, uh, we don't wanna make a decision right now. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and did what? Praise Praise the Lord, right? Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So one of these judges, these intellectual elites comes to Christ, I love this. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so in closing, let me say this. God is our creator, he's our provider, he's our sovereign, he's our father, he's our judge. You and I can respond in one of three ways. We can mock, we can postpone, or we can believe. And the choice, choice is ours.